Hey guys, my name is Nicole Escobar and I am your host. I am also the director of Trees of Hope, which is a nonprofit in South Florida that exists to train, educate, and equip parents on how to protect the children in their life from being sexually abused. We also offer survivor-led healing support groups for victims of sexual abuse. We wanna welcome you because this is our podcast. We hope it encourages you, we hope it inspires you, and we hope you leave here knowing that hope is real, your story matters, and that you are more than just a hashtag. So let's get to our next episode. Hey guys, welcome back to episode nine. We are so happy to be here with you. Today, I am joined with one of my co-hosts, Holly Caratanudo, who has been on the podcast before. She is from Victim Services in Palm Beach. Holly, how are you doing and how are things going with you? I think I'm doing pretty good. I've definitely felt like an improvement in my overall motivation for work and motivation for like being positive and making sure I'm getting outside and getting exercise and like trying to like get out of that quarantine vibe that I think all of us were in for so long. So I think right now I I'm doing pretty well. I know I went to the dentist yesterday and I was like, I, I like want to hug people because I'm like, hello, nice to see you. And they're like, don't touch me. And I'm like, I know I'm still not in the, it's like such a weird thing because it's like, we're finally starting to get out and, but we're still not like allowed to touch anyone. So exactly. Like yeah. So weird. So I, I wanted to ask you at Victim Services, are there any trends that you're seeing right now? Right now, I would say, um, the courts were kind of closed down for a little while. So there weren't like a lot of people walking in, but the lobbies are now reopened again. So we're seeing people come in to file injunctions. Um, domestic violence cases that maybe happened during that whole shutdown are coming in finally. So our offices that actually operate like out of the courthouses, we've definitely seen them getting a lot more cases over they they were kind of slow when the courthouses were closed, but over the past few weeks as things have opened up, they're definitely picking up again. Okay. Wow. And, and would you say there's more than usual happening during this time? Not yet. I still think that there's a large percentage of people that are not out and about yet. There's people that are still at home. Um, you know, not everything's really opened up yet, especially like in South Florida where we are, things are still restaurants and things like that are still shut down for the most part. So mm -hmm. I would give it a couple more months before we really see that big uptick in cases again. Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, so on this episode, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the abuser, the feelings that a survivor may have towards that abuser. And then I want to talk about how that relates to reporting or maybe delayed reporting. So first, I think it's important that we understand more about the abuser and how a survivor may feel towards them. So we bring this up because a lot of times people will not report their abuse because of how they feel towards their abuser, the mixed feelings, and how the abuse makes them feel about themselves. A lot of shame, a lot of regret, a lot of, a lot of different emotions. So I wanted to ask you, Holly, um, a vast majority of victims do not report to law enforcement, and if they do, sometimes it's delayed. Can you tell us some reasons why this might be? 
So for our young children and even our adolescents and and even young adults, sometimes they don't see what happened to them as a crime, especially if it was a perpetrator who they were close with and maybe they don't understand what abuse looks like. I think we're doing a lot better job as a society in our communities and our schools of educating young people about sexual abuse. The schools have whole curriculums developed to talk about sexual abuse. So people do know that it's happening and, and know that it's a crime, but they're still a, a complex situation when it's someone that loves you or someone that cares about you or someone you're close with who's doing these things to you. It's that, well, this is someone who cares about me, but I've heard that what they're doing is wrong. And like young people have a really hard time with that dichotomy of two different situations occurring at once. Um, so they might not view it as a crime. Often they're embarrassed or ashamed too often our victims believe that they did something to cause this. And of course we can say until we're blue in the face that this was never their fault, but they often do blame themselves. They have, um, or they, they fear that they're going to be held responsible for what happened. We hear this from children a lot. They think they're going to get in trouble because of what happened to them. They might fear the perpetrator, fear that they're going to lose their home or their safe place because of if the, they live with a perpetrator. In some communities in our society, law enforcement is not seen as someone who's going to fix the problem for them. So marginalized communities are often less likely to report to law enforcement because they don't think that law enforcement is going to help. Or sometimes they think that maybe they're selling out their own community by reporting someone that's among them to law enforcement, and they will get blamed for that. And there's a lot of victim blaming that occurs. Yeah, very true. Um... You know, so how do you fix that? I think encouraging people that when someone comes to you and discloses that they've been abused or assaulted, the most important thing you can do is believe them. We I came on here, my first podcast with you was about our Start by Believing campaign. We know that most people tell a family or a friend is their first person that they tell when they've been sexually abused. And how that person reacts can make or break that healing journey for that person. If they have that bad reaction initially, they're, they're likely that they're not gonna ever tell anyone again. They're definitely not gonna report to law enforcement. But if they have someone who's supportive, who offers them options, who listens to their story, they're way more likely to get help, to get healing assistance, and to speak to law enforcement. Yeah, it can literally change the trajectory of someone's, a victim's life if they, we start by believing, if right. we just simply start by being a supportive person. And um, I know uh, if you've been trailing with us for the past year, you knew Anissa and Anissa shared her story, who was one of our co-hosts, that when she was sexually abused, she went and shared her story with uh, her her roommate and her roommate said something like, well, didn't you guys hook up before? And that set her up with the narrative in her mind that no one's going to believe me that this was sexual abuse. I mean, how do you even deal with that? How do you, how do you look at that as a crime when, yeah, I did kiss him before. And yeah, I did do whatever with him before. And, and um, so if that person would have just started by supporting her and, and saying, Hey, I'm here for you, whatever you want to do, if you want to report this let's go it could have changed her whole life um and so we encourage you that we have an episode on here that is all about what to say and not to say to a survivor i can honestly say that if i didn't go through healing myself and hear this information myself i probably could have messed up and said something wrong to a survivor um i i probably 
still today need to get better with that because sometimes when people share certain things with me, I'm inquisitive to know what took place and not realizing that the details could make that person feel very uncomfortable and I don't need to know the details, but I'm just trying to get like in the muck and the mess with them and I'm, and I could be, I could be messing something up. Right. So we talk to teens about consent and we tell them yes means yes, no means no, but we don't talk about the complexities that someone might say yes one time to hooking up or messing around. And then the next time they say no and someone takes advantage of them and that's considered sexual violence. We need to get more into the complexities of sexual violence with our teens, especially now that our young people are not going to be in schools with their trusted adults of teachers and school counselors. They're more likely to talk with their peers and people of their own age. And so we have to prepare our teens to have those conversations with their friends and know what the options are for their friends, talking to them about who they can call, who they can talk to. I think our teens have the ability to be supportive friends. We just have to help them get to that place. Yeah, I agree. Um, Let me ask you a question. If let's say a younger child uh, is friends with somebody who has been sexually abused. So let's say like a 10 year old has been sexually abused and they hang out with another 10 year old. What would you do as a parent to tell your child about what has happened to that other child to sort of get ahead of the conversation that they most likely are going to have these two young kids. Yeah, that's such a a hard conversation to have because you want kids to have normal friendships, right? Especially a child that's been sexually abused. You want them to have that ability to have a normal friendship with their peer. I think as a parent, it's more on the parent's responsibility to monitor that relationship and kind of make sure that You know, I'm big on not letting kids play in a room with a closed door, you know, making sure that they're somewhere where you can see what's happening between them. Not that anything might happen, but you want to have that safety for both children. That child that's been sexually abused, they might not be comfortable with being in a room with another child with the door closed. Um, But you can have conversations with young children talking about that they've been hurt, that the child was hurt by someone that cared about them, and we're here to be their friend. And you should always have an open conversation with your kids with anybody because you really don't know the history of any child that your child is playing with. And not just to focus on the kid that you know has been sexually abused. If anything we know, most kids that have been sexually abused aren't going to tell anyone. Mm -hmm. So really being prepared that that could be any child. Yeah. And so you're saying to have a general conversation of um, talking about, um, well, I, okay. So this actually came to my front door where someone called me and asked me my advice. Mm -hmm. And so my advice was just simply, if you've already had the body safety conversation, you could easily go from there and just start talking about in general that um, this, that, you know, some of your friends may not know their body safety. Like, you know, you know, your body parts and just remember that, um, some, it could happen that one of your friends may come back, that someone touched them in those body parts. And you need to 
tell mommy and also know how to be a good friend and just listen to them um, and just watch your words. And, and I know these are hard, difficult concepts for a child to know, but my only thoughts for this mother was you got to get in front of this. Mm -hmm. And this is, it's important. This is where our prevention material comes in, where if you haven't had that body safety conversation, now's the time. And I almost got the impression that they hadn't um, and they wanted their child to be sort of in this bubble. And I I said, well, that's probably the first step that I would step in with you is that you need to ask yourself why you want them in this bubble. And I understand protecting them, but this world is not safe. And you want them learning this information from you as opposed to the victim now who was sexually abused, who you never know, they could act out what they had has happened to them on your child. I mean, I don't want to cause a lot of different fears in this parent, but putting living in a bubble is not going to keep you safe. (laughs) Yeah. And I think too, we've seen it with like 12 year old age where a kid discloses a history of sexual abuse to their peers and the peers shun that child. And you don't want that to happen either. You know, you want your child to be able to come back and talk to you about it. And remember that that's not that child's fault that they were hurt, that they were sexually abused and ensure that your child can be that friend for them and support them as well. Yeah. I love that you said that because I actually went on a whole tangent about that. And I was like, um, I was like, maybe I should calm down because I don't know if their child would do that, but that's kind of what happened to me. And I was just, I kept reiterating that um, I basically disclosed to the girls, the boys brother sister who sexually abused me and it, they were like calling me like a hoe and stuff. Um, we're kids. Like, right. we should, like, how do we know the word hoe? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so now let's talk about the survivor who may have mixed feelings towards their abuser, which could prevent them from reporting and and ever dealing with what has happened to them. So if you were sexually abused by a family member or someone who is highly valued person, such as a pastor or a coach or someone that you looked up to, like an inspiring teacher, you probably have strong mixed emotions or feel very confused about how you actually feel towards this person. So for example, if the abuser was a father, you may have conflicting feelings like feeling loathing to loving particularly if your father had been relatively nurturing at different points of your life and you felt supported by them for a number of years prior to this abuse ever starting. Your relationship with the person who committed the abuse affects the feelings you may experience with that person. So if you're a survivor of rape by a stranger, you probably don't have a bunch of mixed feelings. Um, However, you do need to be mindful of your feelings and your emotions and what was taken from you and not sweep any of them under the spiritual rug. A lot of times we hear Christians say statements like, I forgive them and want them to be with Christ. I want them to know Jesus. I just want to move on from this. And all that is really a wonderful thing. And I think that's the end goal is for them to have a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, because with that, we see true repentance comes and convictions comes and a change comes. However, we're focused on you right now. And that is you having to go through the grieving process. 
So the reality is, is that you cannot heal from what you continue to hide. And that's even from yourself and from the feelings of grief and the pain of the act that was caused against you and what was taken from you. We need to respect all the emotions that God has given us in the prop and process them at the proper time. So anger is a proper emotion to have towards this situation. You may have been a child victim. If so, you wanted the attention and affection of a parent and a significant or significant adults in your life. And that's a very good thing. That's Every child, every person wants that. You may have a strong attachment to the person who abused you. You may want to protect that person from the consequences of their abusive behavior. You may have wanted the abuse to stop, but you didn't want the relationship to end. And what you really wanted in essence was to have a healthy, caring relationship with this person. You may have carried over the years a heavy burden of inner turmoil about your mixed feelings of love and hate for this person. I can totally relate to this because um, I've had bosses who sexually harassed me and I felt strong love and look and admiration for them. But when they were talking sexually to me and taking advantage of my employment and the fear that I had of losing my job, I hated them. And it was like every time coming into work, feeling like got to put on a good face got to smile when they say something dirty to me. Um, and then two minutes later, you know, they're telling me what to do in regards to the job. So it was so conflicting. Um, in many families, the victim experienced both pleasure and pain. Despite the abuse to experience some pleasant memories and feelings about a family member or a friend is very natural. These positive feelings, however, should not keep us from holding the abuser accountable. So I just want to give you a real life example of this, of a story that we've been able to hear here at Trees of Hope and share. Uh, a girl's name, we'll just say her name is Rebecca. Um, she remembered how much fun it was to go to work with her dad. He drove a city bus for years and she rode that bus with him. It felt good when he bragged to her, his customers about her. He was warm and caring and paid special attention to her. She was a little girl in those days and she wasn't afraid with him on the bus. Um, she enjoyed it. This was the dad that she loved. However, the dad that would sexually abuse her would take advantage of her at night, would come in when he was drunk, would come in and get super mad at her, would, would abuse her not only verbally but physically and sexually. Um, and the question that she always asked is, how come this is happening to me? How come he's two totally different people? Um, and what she wanted was that relationship that she was experiencing when he was caring and loving. So she accepted or didn't fight as much as she probably wanted to as an older person looking back when he was sexually abusing her. Um, she basically replaced good memories with memories of horror. So I hear that often. It's, I hear it all the time. People who come through our healing groups, they will 
focus as we're going through the healing, they will focus their whole time, but they were good to me. They did this, they did that. And they won't even recognize that this person sexually abused them. Um, Holly, we were talking earlier about that documentary that you just watched on Netflix. Can you share a little bit about that? So I would recommend this movie, this documentary. It's called Athlete A on Netflix. It is triggering. So if you've experienced sexual violence in your life, just be aware they do talk about sexual abuse. But if you know anything about competitive gymnastics, it's a brutal sport. The coaches are tough. They often, you know, don't let the young girls eat junk food. They want them working out all the time, work through their injuries. And Larry Nasser was the doctor who would take care of those injuries. And he would sneak them candy and junk food when the coaches weren't looking. And so for so many of the young women who he abused, there was this complex of Larry is the nice guy. He's the one taking care of us. He's the one helping us. And then he would commit this awful sexual abuse. And they couldn't really process it at that age. They were really struggling with the fact that this was abuse. And many of the women were defending him initially and saying, no, he wouldn't do that. And they took a long time to kind of process their own trauma and accept that this person who had helped them so much was seriously abusing them and taking advantage of them. And some of them seeing the, the um, pornographic images that he had taken of them in his own home, like it was almost, con they were confronted with evidence that he was abusing them. And it, it, that was what they needed to process that own trauma. So again, not accepting it as a crime and not accepting that someone that's helping you can also hurt you. What's so funny is as you're telling this, it's like, you know, as always an outsider looking in, you can go, that was the grooming process. Right. Like he, he targeted them. He's found that secret bond that would connect them. He created something like a secret to hold, yes. to hold them in, you know, to keep them coming to him. It's so clear, but when you're in it, it's not, it's so blurry and it's hard. And I'm telling you as somebody who was an adult and this happened to me um, with a boss who I looked up to, who did this same exact thing and then would gaslight me to make me think I was going nuts when I would start to have moments of like, Hey, you're talking inappropriate to me. You're making me feel very uncomfortable. Um, that, you know, no one would make, no one would believe you if you told them that they would know I was joking. And it was like, okay, am I going crazy here? Yeah. And you talked about how other respected people talk so great about this person. And yes. I think this happens with sexual abuse of children all the time. You know, we talk about the priests that were sexually abusing young children, you know, even more recently, but how many of their parents the priest was so respected by that family. They believed that this person could do no wrong. So when they're sexually abusing you, but then you go home and all you hear from your family members is how great this person is and how they're so respected in the community, you do start to question, am I crazy? Is there something wrong with me that I think that he's hurting me? Right. So I think that that is such a normal experience for victims of sexual abuse that we don't talk about enough, that this is a common reaction for them to have. Yes, totally. Okay. So now let's take a look at the abuser so we can understand them a little bit more. 
So sexual abusers usually are me first individuals who think of their own pleasure. Some have very dominant personalities and may exercise tyrannical control over their homes. Often they are unable to have meaningful relationships with people their own age group. They usually are emotionally dependent on others and unable to express their emotional needs appropriately. Just as with the victims, abusers can be male or female, adolescents or adults, rich or poor. They can be fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, babysitters, uncles, aunts, neighbors, or even strangers. Abusers can be doctors, pastors, lawyers, teachers, as well as is vagrants. They can come from any place within the family and from any place within society. Personality characteristics frequently found in people who commit abuse include poor impulse control and low self-esteem. And when I think back on a lot of the people who've come through our program um, and myself, that is the number two characteristics that I could say was a theme throughout us all was they had no impulse control and a low self-esteem and they were making themselves feel uh, purposeful or have an identity through the power and control that they had over their victim. It's seriously sick. <laughs> often offenders are involved with some type of substance abuse and are full of self-pity. They often use pornography both in their own stimulation and for attracting possible victims. They may have been emotionally deprived in childhood and may also be victims themselves. Possibly they have had a great deal of responsibility in their families of origin. Um, those who commit sexual abuse may come from family systems that did not set appropriate boundaries. Often their home situation may be or may have been chaotic with no family members having had their needs met appropriately. Some perpetrators' families may have attempted to isolate their children from the community, and some offenders have been extremely overprotected. Their families um, sometimes exhibit rigid and extreme religious and moralistic attitudes towards uh, people groups, their community, or even uh, them, themselves or their family. So do you want to add anything about an abuser there, Holly, or... So when it comes to perpetrators, it is so important to know these factors that led to their behavior. Too often as advocates, we're accused of wanting to just like stick people in jail or get money from them. We hear this from survivors a lot that people kind of victim blame them and tell them they're just out for money. Our goal, I know you and I are in the same place here, that we really just want sexual violence to not exist in our community anymore. And in order for that to happen, we have to stop perpetrators. We have to understand how they are formed, where this behavior comes from, and then how can they be healed? That's kind of a controversial topic of whether or not perpetrators can be healed. But when I think back on the first time that someone becomes a perpetrator, they're just kind of testing out this behavior. And if we can really stop them there the first time that they hurt someone and really get them to a point of healing and understanding their own behavior, you talked about the family of origin, where they came from. Often there's like domestic violence in the home. And so they witnessed a power struggle growing up. They were taught that sex is only one thing and it's a bad thing. And they have these beliefs that aren't accurate. And if we can really help them understand at an early point that those are inaccurate views and that they cannot continue this behavior, that's the goal. The goal is to really stop perpetrators from doing this behavior. I totally agree. But how do you get 
a perpetrator who desires to sexually abuse or whatever, they're testing it out the first time, how do you get them to be more attracted to healing? They're, they have to be caught. That's the bottom line, because if they're not ever told that this behavior is unacceptable or that this behavior is wrong, there's like a whole, and this is really sick, but there's a whole society of people that believe pedophilia is okay and acceptable, right? So if they find that group of people and get sucked into that terrible world, are we going to be able to save them? This is why when we look at child-on-child sexual abuse, it's really important to ensure that those children that are perpetrating sexual abuse get the help that they need because we don't want them to end up being adults continuing this behavior. Right. And so would you say that the information that we're about to get into with reporting is super important to report if you, if you can, if you can get muster the courage to do so? Because if you report and this person ends up going to jail or that they could get that restorative um, assistance that they need to That's maybe stop this behavior? Okay. Yeah, that would be the goal. I mean, we know that the more someone perpetrates this behavior over and over again, it becomes normalized to them. They stop seeing anything wrong with it. They stop hiding it. You were talking about having a boss that just was, you know, sexually harassing you in the middle of the workday. That's normal to them. They've done it so long to so many people and they've never been stopped that they don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, I think that there's a little bit of an undercurrent of sexism in our society that exists, that it's accepted. And we have to make sure that we let people know that that's not accepted in the workplace or in any place where someone has power over someone else. Yeah, totally. Okay, so now um, what I want to do is turn it over to you to talk and to learn a little bit more about reporting and delayed reporting. So first question is, how often do people actually report sexual assault to law enforcement? Very rarely. And if they're going to report, it's often um, at least a year late. So one of the most recent research that I was looking at, that it's at least a year after the sexual abuse has occurred and usually before that five-year mark. So if you think about between one and five years is when someone's going to report, but one third of all victims never report to anyone, not family, not friends, not law enforcement. We know that because our Bureau of Justice Statistics surveys at least 100,000 people every year to discuss whether or not they were victimized by a crime. Overall, violent crimes always is trending down. We've done a great job with policing in our community that these violent crimes are going down, except for sexual violence. How crazy is that, that violent crimes are reducing except for the one crime that is terrorizing our society? It just keeps increasing sexual violence. So only 36% of rapes between 1992 and 2000 were reported. So there's a large number of sexual violence not being reported in our society. Why do you think that is that the crimes are going down, but abuse, sexual abuse is going up? I think it's a hidden crime. If someone's murdered, you find a body. Someone is robbed at gunpoint, you're going to see stuff missing. You know what I mean? That there's, there's people see that in the society. You don't see sexual violence happening on the street very rarely, right? So it's a hidden crime. It's just like domestic violence. We just don't hear about it. We don't see it with our own eyes. Wow. 
Okay, so how successful is the criminal justice process for victims of interpersonal violence? We know for every 100 rapes committed in the United States, less than three perpetrators are incarcerated. It's very hard for our state attorneys and our prosecutors to actually win these cases. And, you know, we, we have to give them some grace that they want to win these cases and they want to put people away if these people deserve it but it's just so hard without the evidence. So we know that in the media, when people go and talk about sexual violence that happened, they have a delayed report of sexual violence. So often you hear in the media, people questioning the motives of that victim survivor. Why are they coming forward now? So then you have to think about what does a jury think of this victim? And prosecutors have to determine whether or not they actually think a jury is going to believe the victim. And if a jury is actually going to find this person guilty of a crime. Often interpersonal violence cases go to a plea deal. And sometimes victims are not satisfied with that. There was a 2003 study done of uh, interpersonal violence cases. Almost half of hundreds of victims of survivors were dissatisfied with all aspects of the criminal justice process. They're just not feeling like they're heard in these cases. 27% were dissatisfied with the prosecution. And the reasons that they were dissatisfied when we looked at those people who felt that way, they didn't have any control over the process. It's not the victim versus the offender in those cases, it's the state versus the offender. So sometimes the victim doesn't necessarily get to steer the bus in the prosecution. Um, some of them weren't happy with the mandatory arrest and prosecution policies. People get confused by that. They think, well, if my partner physically assaulted me, I'd probably want them arrested and prosecuted. But think about that. What if your partner is also the parent of your child? What if your partner is the financial person in your household and they get arrested and put in jail and you lose your house, your child loses their parent? So sometimes that part of the criminal justice process doesn't feel good for the victim. They have to continue to live with the abuser. So if they're living with the abuser while that abuser is going through the criminal justice process for the abuse they committed on them, what kind of life is that? How hostile is that environment? And then individuals who identified as African-American often felt dissatisfied with the criminal justice process. And I think we really need to look more into that and understand why they are feeling dissatisfied and what would be a better option for them. Yeah, so what could be a better option for them? So some alternatives um, to the criminal justice process have become more popular in the past few years. We're looking at restorative justice. Now, the Title IX procedures for schools have changed over the past few months, and they're actually being implemented next month. And they're asking for more schools to look at restorative justice options for their college campuses. So that's going to be really interesting to see how successful restorative justice is for our, our college campuses. Um, restorative justice involves conferencing between a trained facilitator, the victim, and the offender. This cannot be done in every case. We know for a fact that this isn't going to work for every case. But what if you have two peers that one peer sexually assaulted the other peer while they both had been drinking? And they don't know if this case is going to go anywhere in the criminal justice process, but the victim feels that they want something to change. This restorative justice allows that victim to talk to the offender, talk to people in their life and come up with a, a compromise of sort to say, 
how can we fix this? How can we make it right? And the offender has to take responsibility and say, yes, I did it. And yes, I'm sorry. When you talk to victims, how many of them have ever had their offender say, yes, I did it. And yes, I'm sorry that I did it. And I want to make it right and fix it. I never, no. never. And how important would that be for a victim to have someone say, you're hundred percent right. I did this. I'm sorry. And I'm going to make it right. And I'm going to fix it. For some people that could change their entire life just to hear their offender say those words and then take the action to actually do something to make it right or fix it. Okay, but let's honestly look at the offender on that one. If they are uh, all the things that I had mentioned before, they probably have a really hard time with coming to terms with wrong. They gaslight things. They don't take accountability. They blame shift. So they basically, if, I mean, I think if you're abusing women or if you're abusing anyone, you have come to a point in your life where you think that person owes you that you it's all about self. So I'm, I'm asking how realistic is it to think that that person is going to come to such a humble place and be like, I am such a failure. I dropped the ball here. I totally took something from you. Right off the bat, there's certain personality traits that it doesn't work for. If there's any antisocial tendencies where they don't have empathy for any, anyone else, it's not going to ever work for them. If they are emotionally volatile, people that are you talked about have that instability in their emotions, it's not going to work for them. But if you think about someone who's young and this is their first offense and they have shamed their family and embarrassed people in their life and they have that ability to feel guilt and that ability to um, really have remorse for their actions, it could work for them. And the reason that it, it would be beneficial is if that case is not going to go anywhere in the criminal justice process and the victim is never going to get that healing that way, well, maybe restorative justice is another option that we could put on the table to make sure that this person, the victim, feels heard, has their story told. Because in the criminal justice process, the offender is going to say, it didn't happen. This person's a liar. Blame the victim for everything that they did. And the victim is going to get torn apart in the criminal justice process. We see it happen in all the big cases that happen in the news. The victims are completely blamed for the sexual assault and the sexual violence. But in restorative justice, the victim is the victim and they did nothing wrong. And the offender has to take all of their responsibility. I love like there's some um, situations in New Zealand where they use the family of the offender and the community around the offender to kind of monitor the offender. So they take responsibility, they say, I'm sorry. And then the people around the offender follow them not follow them literally, but ensure that this behavior isn't continuing. And kind of, you know, it's kind of going back to our roots. It's using Native American culture often, like using the community to police a little bit, to ensure that this person isn't reoffending and they're actually following through on the things that they said they were going to follow through on. Yeah. Um, I had heard something the other day from a friend. We were just kind of like talking about some of uh, these kind of topics. And it was talking about how like America was founded on, on some um, strong Christian principles, Judeo-Christian principles. And the reason for 
if if we all did follow those, uh, like honoring our brother, you know, putting others before ourselves, and if we truly follow like a lot of the rules and regulations in there, I'm not talking about like sacrifices of um, animal sacrifices to condone for sin, nothing like that. I'm just talking about like your common respect for humanity and other people, and your your wealth, your but and your your work ethic and things like that. We wouldn't need police that much, right? And the reason why we need more police and more law and and stuff like that is because that's not the world we're living in. People, um, when left to themselves, can go based on their own desires. And a lot of times those desires are unhealthy and very bad. Um, So although I'm 100%, I think we always want to restore people back because that's I'm a Christian. That's what our ultimate goal with every human being on this earth, no matter what sin they've committed. Because if I truly look at a Jeffrey Dahmer and I go, well, that one's bigger than mine, then I'm not truly being Christ-like. I need to take a mirror and go, where have I murdered? Where have I killed? Where have I assaulted and torn apart people, right? Yes, his acts do deserve punishment because those are the consequences for bad actions but at the end of the day we all if we desire to repent and turn away from those things desire we deserve forgiveness and restoration so i'm in total agreement but i guess where i'm having a hard time is that's not reality it almost feels like narnia land yeah and i think it's more for young offenders without a history of violence when we talk about how do we stop sexual violence from just ballooning like it's it usually starts small and if we can intervene in that small first act and and ensure that that person doesn't reoffend we would really lessen sexual violence because we know offenders often re-victimize over and over and it's one offender usually has six to ten victims yeah totally. so if you have one offender only having one victim when we stop it at that first victim we're going to make such a difference in our society yeah I agree. Um, and I think the heart's right. I just think it, it's hard. It's a complicated thing because it is depravity of man. It is, it's, it, there's so much that goes into it. And it's not just sometimes just fulfilling a sexual desire. It could literally be a totally, it could be satanic. It could be, um, it could just go so far down. I mean, I, I think of a lot of times you have offenders who hurt kittens and hurt little animals. And those are the first things you start to see is when you pick right. up on little children who abuse animals. Um, you know, how do you stop it from there and know that they're going to be a little uh, rapist down the road? You don't know. Right. Right. But a lot of times people excuse away those small things because mm-hmm. they go, Oh, they didn't mean it. They just, you know, they just blew that cat up. And it, I mean, cause I'm saying this from my own experience. I had a kid down my street who put a bomb on a kitten. And I remember thinking, wow, that was really weird. Um, and they're sick. They're a sicko. They're in prison yeah. now, like federal prison. And because they had done horrible things down the road, but it was like, as it was happening, I didn't want to speak up because I was afraid he was going to hurt me if I told my parents, but I was like six years old, you know, and, and, but it, but it's, it could have been at that moment that you speak up and you say something to your parents and you go, something was really weird. I didn't, they, they heard an animal, an innocent thing. And I do think that's where you start to pick up on sort of these, 
uh, objectifying behaviors. Right. And I think we don't teach kids empathy anymore. Like that you can hurt other people's feelings. How do other people feel when you say or do certain things? That is so important for us, for our kids to understand that our actions have consequences. Sometimes, you know, we have, and I tried not to do this to be like the helicopter parent that like hovers over my child and has them living in this bubble and their needs come before everyone else's needs. That is so unfair to your child. They have to know that other people get to win sometimes and other people, you know, might be hurt by the things that you say or the things that you do. And we need to have empathy for other people. If you don't have empathy in your life, you don't understand the consequences of your actions on other people's behavior. Um, a book that I'm reading with my daughter right now is called A Hundred Dresses, and it teaches empathy to little girls. Um, it's about, you know, bullying and people that have less than you and how they're treated. Um, and it's just so important that, that empathy is taught. You know, we teach our kids math and we teach our kids reading. Are we teaching them to be nice? Are we teaching them to help others? Yeah, I love that. Um... The book I was going to tell you about was about serial killers who lack empathy. So you're so sweet. <laughs> um, I forget the name of it, but I think it's called The Essence of Evil. Uh, but basically the whole premise of the book is that the one thing that these serial killers and these specific people who did horrible things all lacked and it was empathy. And, mm -hmm. you, and people were sort of interviewed and talked to share about how they started to see that they lacked empathy in the beginning of their childhood years and they didn't correct it. And uh, I was actually watching a Dr. Phil episode and it was all about that. And he was trying to train this parent because the little kid was sort of um, saying he was going to kill his parents. He was like, and he, they were at a stage of like, you know, to go to Dr. Phil now and be on the show and bring this to their attention. He would say he was going to kill himself. And he goes, listen, this goes back to, you need to teach your child empathy. You need to teach your child about how to give gifts of love and acts mm -hmm. of love to other children. I think we need to start there because he is doing all this for emotional attention and, and maybe other things are going on there, but we need to start with the one thing of empathy. And I feel like we lack empathy as a society yeah. so much right now. It's, it's actually scary of what we're all going to turn into um, down the road. And it's something that I have to tr constantly be asking for more of. And um, one of the things that I know as a Christian is that we go through hard times and struggles to create empathy in our hearts so that we can look at a situation and, and say, I empathize with you as opposed to just sympathize with you, which is like so flippant, you know? Um, I, I recommend people go on missions trips. You want to learn empathy, go on a missions trip to another country. You will learn empathy real quick. It'll I think the, the easiest thing to ask yourself is when you see someone doing something and you're questioning, like, why are they doing it? Exactly. What has happened in their life that has led them that this is the decision that they had to make, that, that this is their only option? You know, I, I sometimes I, I get a little like on a soapbox and people, you know, there was um, a, a one time I was walking, do my walk on the beach and a boat came up with Cuban migrants. So people that were escaping Cuba and coming to the United States. And I posted a picture on my social media, like, oh my gosh, can you believe that this just happened in front of me? Like these people just came up on shore and people were really making comments like, 
oh, they're coming here for all of our free services and all of these things. And I said, and ask yourself, how bad must it be in their country that they got on this boat that looked like I wouldn't even ride this boat in like a puddle in my street, that they came all of those days through the waves, through the storms to our country? How bad must it be in their life? And I think if we just put ourselves in other people's shoes every now and then, we would have a, a whole different perspective on the world. You know, every victim survivor needs the opportunity to form their own healing journey. It can't be cookie cutter because everyone's offender is different. Everyone's situation is different. And we need to allow them options, choices. They need to have a say in that criminal justice process. If that's what they decide to go with, they need to have a say in moving forward in their life. And that is the ultimate power that we can offer victims and survivors is to take back that control and be able to make the choices on what they think is best in their situation. And I think more people would come forward and report sexual abuse and sexual violence if they knew they were going to be the ones to determine how this case went forward. Yeah. I really love that. And honestly, that's a great place to end. Um, I, I think one of the areas where I struggle the most is my journey was my journey. And I'm like, it works so well for me. Take yeah. this. And that, and I feel convicted when you say that, because I'm like, you're so right. It's not exactly, not everybody has to follow the exact journey in which I followed and vice versa. I don't have to follow someone else's. You got to do what's good for you. Um, I do think adding some really important elements as in group therapy, individual counseling, self-care, and when you're ready, if you want to report, you jump on that. Um, I think these are all important things to add to um, and listening to this podcast because it'll help you grow as well. Well, Holly, do you have anything else you want to add? No, again, thank you. I am um, continue to be amazed by your own journey. And I think you have such a powerful voice. And I want others to have that voice that you have. And I think that is where we need to go is allow victims to have their voice and be heard and help others. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And it's taken me a long time to get here. Um, so I love that it, you can see the hard work that I have done. And I'm super appreciative of that really special comment. Um, so we will see you guys next time. I wanted to add that if you have been wondering what is our schedule like um, for the past couple of months, I've been hesitant to actually say what it is because we have tried to do every two weeks. We've tried to do every week. We've tried to do a few things and being very honest, uh, life happens and a lot of different things have happened here at Trees of Hope and not only with me personally, but I can commit to, and we as a podcast family here can commit to one a month. So we are going to try our very best to have them on the last Thursday of every month. So when you're hearing this, this is going to be an August episode and then moving forward, that's going to be our new um, schedule. So thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. If you learned anything, if you loved anything, can you please share this with your friends? Can you give, please give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms? We would appreciate that so much. We love you guys. See you next time. Bye. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. Maybe even consider rating the podcast or share it with one of your friends. 
It really makes all the difference. For more content from Trees of Hope and to connect with us, go to treesofhope.org. We love you. Bye.